Uh, the Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, a very familiar passage, uh, uh, approximately the beginning of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It's preceded by the all-too-familiar Beatitudes, but we're going to be looking at the first teaching section uh, specifically in verses 13 through 16. But prior to looking at that, I want to hear our catechism lesson for the day. We have uh, made progress uh, through the catechism, and we are in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, here's a quiz. What are the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism? Guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service, all right? So we are in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism, though it is a man-made uh, document, it's written by men, it is biblical in two specific senses. One, the word catechism is found in the opening words of the gospel according to Luke, all right? Uh, what uh, Luke had been instructed in, and katecheo, I won't go into uh, word origin, but uh, it has to do with echoing back what you hear. And that structure of the catechism is question and answer format. It was a teaching method used by Jesus, for example, found in the Gospels, how many times Jesus asks questions of his hearers. And it's a very effective uh, pedagogical method or teaching method, um, and also, the catechism is biblical because that three-part outline follows the outline of the book of Romans, all right? Romans chapter 1, 2, and the beginning of 3 teach us about the universality of sin, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether Jew or Gentile, young or old, male or female, everyone is guilty of sin and under the condemnation of God for their sin which God takes as a personal offense against him. Then chapters 3 through 11 uh, detail salvation in the second part, uh, what we know as the second part of the catechism, as Paul goes on to explain, expand, and expound on the good news of Jesus Christ. That is what God has done in and through Jesus Christ to save people from the guilt and condemnation of sin. And then in chapters 12 through 16 is the response. Therefore is the first word in chapter 12, all right? I beseech you by the mercies of God, everything which I have taught you in chapters 3 through 11, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. It's a summary statement which is expanded and explained in chapters 12 through 16 in a life of service or gratitude. So guilt, grace, gratitude is the outline of the book of Romans. So let no one say that the Heidelberg Catechism is not biblical, all right? Um, it is not biblical, certainly, in the sense that it's, in, it's inspired, but it is biblical in both its method and its outline, its content. So we're in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, <clears throat> and we are asked this question, page 887, question and answer 86 and 87. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, then why should we do good works? The answer is, together, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, 
is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us, and further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Question 87, turn the page. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. And then turning to the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 5. Beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two points to uh, this catechism sermon uh, this morning. First of all, the requirement of good works, all right? And secondly, the reasons for good works, all right? It was uh, popular at the time of the Reformation to lay a charge against uh, the Reformers and against Protestants by the Catholic Church, lay a charge against them uh, that uh, teaching that people are saved by grace alone, apart from what you do through faith alone in Christ alone, all the solas, led to immoral living, that there would be no incentive, no motivation to live holy and godly lives. And the Reformers at the time of the Reformation, those who were teaching and preaching, said no. Of course, the Bible teaches the necessity or the requirement of holy, godly living, or if you will, good works. And it was, uh, uh, in a phrase, they said, we are not saved by good works, uh, but you can't be saved without good works. You're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And that is simply echoing what uh, the catechism here says. Now, I'm going to have you actually turn to another passage, which is much more explicit in this regard. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Most of you, uh, most of us, are very familiar with this particular passage for its teaching on uh, grace and faith alone. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, all right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's the this? What's the precedent for that? What's it referring back to? Faith, right? Faith. This faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Faith is a gift, all right? So, not as a result of works, all right? We're not saved by works, all right? 
so that no one may boast. God gets all the glory. But look at verse 10. For all the emphasis in North American evangelicalism on verses 8 and 9 with respect to salvation by grace alone through faith alone, many people omit verse 10, which is an embarrassing omission. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right? So the reformers said, no, we're not saved by good works. Clearly, that's what Paul is teaching here in verses 8 and 9. But he doesn't therefore dispense with the necessity, the importance of the requirement of good works, nor does he say it leads to immorality. No, one must be holy, one must pursue holiness, without which one, uh, one will not see the Lord. You are saved for good works. That's what Paul says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. We're not saved because of good works, but we're not saved without them either. And that's what uh, the Catechism is teaching in question and answer 87 that we read. Can those who are ungrateful and unrepentant be saved? By no means. No. This is a direct response and refutation of the allegation made by the Catholic Church against Protestants, all right? Saying that if you, if you teach people they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then that will lead to immorality. It will not promote holiness. And the Catechism says, no, by no means. By no means. Scripture tells us, and it lists the footnote references there, I'm not going to have you turn to them, all right? No unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, no slanderer, no robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. If you've been here for any length of time at Messiah's Reform Fellowship, you know the familiar phrase which comes forth from this pulpit often, right? No holiness, no heaven. You can't live like hell and expect to go to heaven. You cannot. We are not saved by good works, but you are not saved without them either, all right? I trust this is not news to anybody here, all right? But, of course, one must ask yourself in the light of God's word whether or not that's true of you, all right? Whether or not that's true of you, okay? And I say that because this has been the perennial and perpetual problem of the people of God going all the way back to Israel in the Old Testament. They thought that because they were the chosen people, all right, they could live any way they wanted, they thought that because God had given them the law at Sinai and they possessed the law that they didn't need to live according to the law. And you see this repeatedly as the prophets, minor and major prophets in the Old Testament, were sent by God to address the people of God. No, you need to repent. You are not living according to my word. You are not walking in my ways. You are not pleasing in my sight. Repent or perish. And of course, there was a whole segment of the nation of Israel, the northern Israelites, which went into exile and were never heard from again. God is long-suffering and patient with his people. But be assured that his patience runs out for those who are ungrateful and unrepentant. So the requirement of good works... 
one of the reasons, this is so interesting. I, I love this question and answer in the catechism. The reason for good works are numerous, and I'm going to focus on a couple for our purpose this morning, uh, but uh, just to rehearse them here, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, that he may be praised through us. Look at our text, Matthew 5, right? Verse 16. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here, all right? Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is that God may be glorified through your sanctified living. Further, that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. It's another whole subject. We've dealt with assurance in the past, so I'm not going to this morning. And by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, and I want to focus on this this morning, all right? Is there is an evangelistic rationale to holy and godly living. There is an evangelistic rationale to doing good works, and it's the reason, one of the reasons for good works that the Catechism mentions here. Now, if you're open to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to have another quiz, all right? So turn to the text. Let's have another quiz here, all right? There are two being statements here, and there's one doing statement. What are the two being statements in Matthew 5, 13 and following? They're right there, black and white. Look, nothing up my sleeve, no tricks. What are the two being statements? Salt and light. What's the doing statement? No, that's negative, positive, doing statement. Right, let your light shine, all right? Let your light shine. So you are salt, you are light, and you are to let your light shine, all right? Now, look at the text. How do you let your light shine? Now, I don't know about you. I wasn't raised in, with Sunday school, but some of you were, and most of you are probably familiar with the little Sunday school ditty, right? This little light of mine, even Bob Dylan sang it, I think, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, right? Now, if you learned that in Sunday school, you were probably told that that means you're to witness for Jesus. You're to tell people about Jesus. That's letting your light shine. Yes? No? Maybe so. Yeah? All right. Look at the text. That's exactly what Jesus does not say. Look. Let your light shine that they may see your good works. Letting your light shine is not verbal testimony at all. Not to say you shouldn't give verbal testimony, all right? But when Jesus talks about letting your light shine, he's talking about the way you live, the way you conduct yourself, how you behave. See your good works, all right? <clears throat> and look at the result. The result is what our catechism picks up on, that God may be glorified that, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, all right? So... <clears throat> you know your Bibles, you know that in the gospel according to John, Jesus is named many things, one of which is that Jesus is the light of the world. Here, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So which is it? 
Are you the light of the world, or is Jesus the light of the world? Now, you know the answer because you know Naomi Contreras. And Naomi Contreras always says, it's both and, not either or. <laughs> the answer is yes, both. So what's the point? The point is, you are to turn what you are into what you do. You are to turn what you are into what you do, all right? <clears throat> and it's talking about a way of life here, okay? So let's dig into this in the time remaining to us uh, this morning, all right? The world lives in darkness, and light pushes the darkness back, all right? How you live your life before a watching world, how you conduct yourself, how you behave, all right, pushes back the darkness, all right? And, all right, it's very important here, your relationship with Jesus Christ is key here, all right? To the extent and degree that your relationship with Jesus Christ is strong, to the extent and degree to which your relationship to Jesus Christ is living, vibrant, all right, all of the appropriate modifiers or adjectives, all right, to that extent and degree, your light will shine bright. People will know that you have been with Jesus. People will know by how you live, all right, uh, that there's something different about you, more on that momentarily, all right? But conversely, to the extent and degree that your relationship to Jesus Christ is static, is moribund, is dry, is nominal, to that corresponding extent and degree, your light will be dim or perhaps non-evident entirely. So not to be too overly theological here when we're talking about your union with Christ or your relationship with Jesus Christ is key. It means that you need to cultivate, you need to develop, you need to nourish, you need to feed, you need to fuel your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to do that on a daily basis, all right? We all know there are times in our spiritual life, I experience it, as I'm sure you have as well, where you just get dry, you just get stale, you just get stuck. That's the time when you need to flee to the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, to run to him, not away from him, and say, Lord, meet me, touch me, heal me, stoke me. Revive in me those flames of love, of passion, so that my light shines bright before a watching world. All right? All right. It's very interesting that neither light nor salt exist for themselves. Neither light nor salt exist for themselves. <clears throat> the church... This needs to be properly qualified, and I can't exhaustively qualify it and modify it today. The church is the only institution that exists for the sake of her non-members. Neither salt nor light exist for themselves. You are salt. You are light. But let's look at a couple of other passages here. Look at Ephesians chapter uh, 4. 
What are the good works that Jesus makes reference here to? Again, not wanting to be abstract or obtuse or too um, uh, highfalutin. Let's get, uh, let's get practical, all right? <clears throat> what are the good works that will let your light shine before men and bring glory to God? Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Kind of a little bit of a rewind in our study of the book of Ephesians here, so this ought to be familiar territory, all right? I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, remember the gospel grammar here, right? Chapters 1 through 3 are no imperatives. It's all indicatives. What God has done for you in Jesus Christ, all right? He's rescued you. He's redeemed you. You've been bought with his blood. You've been filled with his spirit to live a holy life, right? And when we get to chapters 4 through 6, we have almost all exhortations and imperatives, very little indicatives. So he's saying on the basis of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you are to live a work, you are to walk a worthy walk, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do you do that? Well, verses two and three, look. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it means. And of course, all of chapters four, five, and six. Look at Colossians, turn over, you got Ephesians. We'll stop in Philippians. Let's stop briefly there. Chapter 1, verse 27. Oops, same thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. You sit here and you say, I believe the gospel. I am trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ. I am looking to Jesus alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Is your life worthy of the gospel? Is your life worthy of the gospel? So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now Colossians. Colossians 4. Colossians 4. Very specifically in light of our catechism lesson this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Here's an explicitly express evangelistic emphasis to the walk of a Christian. Here's what it means. What? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders before a watching world. How you conduct yourself, how you behave out there, right? Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I think one of the most shameful things that can be said of Christians is that they have a mouth like a sewer or a potty mouth. Shameful. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Look at 1 Thessalonians, next book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And to aspire to live quietly, mind your own beeswax, and work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk, there it is again, properly, one more time. 
before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Explicit, expressed, evangelistic purpose to good works. One more, Titus. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 10. Last one. Titus 2 and verse 10. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Back up to verse 9. Bond servants, (coughs) today we would say employees, all right? Employees are to be submissive to their own bosses and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. How many times I have heard evangelical Christians say we should adorn the doctrine of God, we should adorn the doctrine of God, with no reference to what it's referring to in context. A text without a context, nothing but a pretext. What's the context? It's talking about your work. This, could I say this? People who divorce Christianity from life out there are distorting the Bible. People who say that my faith has to do with my relationship with Jesus, me and Jesus, it's confined to my prayer closet or my family or the walls of the church and has nothing to do with what goes on nine to five, day in, day out, Monday to Saturday, are distorting the Bible. How do you adorn the doctrine of God your Savior? Be a good worker, is what Paul says to Titus. Be a good worker. Your job is where you spend the majority of your waking hours, at least for most of us, right? Spend the majority of our waking hours at work. And people think, oh, if I have to do evangelism after work, I'm going to go down to church, I'm going to go out and hand out tracts or knock on doors or one thing. No, no, no. Right there. Right there. Adorn the doctrine of God in the workplace. And what does that mean? That instead of doing your job, you're witnessing to your colleagues? You're, 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 you're going away to read your Bible and pray? No! It's how you work. You should be the best worker on the job. You should be the most reliable employee. You should be showing up. You know what they say in the military, right? You show up early, you're on time. You show up on time, you're late. You show up late, you're dead. So Christian employees should show up early before you have to punch the clock. And then you give your employer eight hours work for eight hours pay. Otherwise, you're stealing from your employer. You're the hardest worker. You're the most reliable worker. You're the best worker. You're the one that your employer looks to, to get the job done. And everybody knows that if you want a job done, give it to a busy man or a busy woman, because they'll get it done. That's how you adorn the doctrine. So are you adorning the doctrine in your workplace when you go to work tomorrow? You have an evangelistic responsibility, and it's not to tell people about Jesus. Maybe you want to do that on coffee break, at lunchtime, on your own dime. Okay, fine. But it's to work hard so people see there's something about you. Now, one more. First Peter. Then we'll conclude. First Peter. First Peter chapter 3. 
and verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't be obnoxious. Don't be a Bible thumper. Don't shove it down people's throat. Gentleness, respect. Now, why does Peter say you should always be prepared to give an answer? Okay, I'll tell you. Because he expects you to be asked. He expects you to be asked. And you always have to be prepared to give an answer, right? Because he expects you to be asked. And why does he expect you to be asked? I can't look at the surrounding context. If you study the context of First Peter, it's because Peter is promoting holy and godly living. And he's saying, when you live according to the word of God, when you walk in the ways of God, when you adorn the doctrine of God by how you conduct yourself and how you behave, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Anybody who owns a business knows that they can't find good workers. That you just can't find them. People get paid, they don't show up the next day because they've been out drinking or drugging, right? But you just can't find... You, you're a good worker, it's something you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. And Peter says, when you live holy and godly, that'll garner people's attention. It'll, it has a magnetic force. Now, to be honest with you, sometimes it, it elicits hostility. Right? And in our increasingly secular, post-Christian era, maybe more so hostility than positive attention. But it elicits that. Robert Murray McShane said, a holy man or a holy woman is an awesome weapon in the hands of God. So, let your light shine. Now, one last thing. The catechism, in addition to saying you requires good works in order that your neighbors may be one to Christ, Earlier in the Catechism, when going through the Apostles' Creed, it asks, why is Jesus called Christ? And if you've been paying attention to Pastor Ragusa and his exposition of the Catechism, you'll know that it says, because Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit to be prophet, priest, and king. And then in its inimitable pastoral application, the next question is, but why are you called a Christian? And it says, because I share in his anointing. Remember, This is all dependent on your relationship to Jesus Christ, your union to Christ, right? Because I share in his anointing to be prophet, priest, and king. Every Christian has a prophetic responsibility, according to the catechism. That is verbally. And so you see how the catechism is a beautiful balance in the Christian life, like two wings on a plane, right? Word and deed, lips and life, how you talk and how you walk. It has to be both, right? If you walk a certain way, worthy of the gospel, you're living like that, you're adorning the doctrine in the workplace, but people never know why you do it, they might think you're a cult member, they might think you're a Jehovah's Witness. They might think that you're, I don't know, something or other. 
But they won't know that you're living like that because you're a Christian. You have to say, I live like this because Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That verbal witness is that entrance into why you live the way you do. But if you're only talking to people about Jesus, but you're going out and you're clubbing and you're drinking and you're, you know, neglecting God's word and living the way you want, well, then people, why would people pay attention to you? You're just a hypocrite. No, it's both. Lips and life, they go together. So, you are salt and you are light. You don't exist for yourselves. <clears throat> Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We are thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all our sins and from the power of your Holy Spirit who has raised us from the dead to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We ask, Lord God, that that might be evident, manifest, obvious in all our actions and in all that we say and do as we go through this coming week. Bless us towards that end. We ask that you, the Father of Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven, might be glorified. Amen and amen.